So I mentioned already that Parashat Era begins with the teaching about the divine name and finishes with the story about the plagues and then really finishes with the hardening of the heart connected with the plagues. Each time during the plagues, Pharaoh promises to free the Israelites but reverses his decision when the plague is lifted until the last one. The plagues, to remind you, are the water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, flies, livestock pestilence, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and the killing of the firstborn children. As you know, some scientists or naturalists identify a natural pattern to the plagues and therefore say we should not be attributing them to God. There are various theories. I'm going to tell you three of them. Two are really the same theory. One of them is the Santorini theory. Santorini theory is that the plagues were really the fallout of volcanic eruption on the island of Santorini in the south of Greece around 1620 to 1600 BCE. This is a theory advocated by, among others, microbiologist Ciro Trevisanato, and he argues that ancient Egyptian medical texts support the idea. The idea is that winds would have carried volcanic ash to Egypt at some point over the summer. Toxic acids in the volcanic ash would have inclu included the mineral cinnabar, which could have been capable of turning a river a blood-like red color. The accumulated acidity in the water would have caused frogs to leap out and search for clean water. Insects would, of course, the frogs would die on dry land. Insects would have burrowed eggs in the bodies of dead animals, human survivors, generated larvae, then adult insects. The volcanic ash in the atmosphere would have affected the weather, with acid rain landing on people's skin, supposedly, causing boils. The grass would have been contaminated, poisoning the animals that ate it. The humidity from the rain and the subsequent hail would have created optimal conditions for locusts to thrive. Volcanic eruptions could also explain the several days of darkness. So that essentially means nine plagues are accounted for. The tenth plague is always problematic from a natural perspective, but could always be attributed to the idea that some were sacrificing their firstborn in order for the gods, to the Egyptian gods, to change the weather, and which is a theory. Second theory is the red algae theory. This theory, put forward by scientists like John S. Marr, who wrote in 1966 an article in the New York Times, argues that red algae could have sucked oxygen out of Egypt's waterways, killed the fish, that turns the water red, the, the water is red, the fish die, the frogs leap out looking for food, and then they die without frogs to eat the insects, pests proliferated, vermin feasted on corpses, um, then the flies and the locusts. The paper argues that lice would have been a type of insect called culicoides, which can carry two diseases that could explain the livestock deaths, either African horse sickness and also blue tongue. The boils on humans could have been caused by glanders, an airborne bacterial disease spread by flies or tainted meat, and darkness was not be explained, but something caused darkness, let's say a sandstorm. In other words, climate change. This addendum to the algae theory points out that for red algae to flourish in the first place, there needs to be some slow, sludgy influx of warm water. Problem in our time is we know that when warm water occurs, the algae blooms. In 2010, research on stalagmites that, met, you know, that record essentially geologically um, the amount of precipitation through the measurements of the calcium Research suggests in 2010 that there had been a dry period toward the end of the rule of Pharaoh Ramses II. 
So maybe this dry period dried up the Nile, perhaps significantly slowed down the flow of water. According to paleoclimatologist Augusto Mangini, these conditions are ripe for the growth of the bacterium Oscillatoria rubescens, or more colloquially, burgundy blood algae. According to the biologist Stefan, and if you think it's hard to pronounce the algae, his name is Stefan Flugmacher. So what do we attempt to do with such information? One could simply say that such investigations are an attempt to avoid faith in the supernatural miracles God has wrought. If there can be a natural explanation, then perhaps there is no God in the story, and there can be no point to the story. The rabbis of blessed memory already saw the flaws in such an approach. Well aware and likely uncomfortable that Christianity demanded that faith be based on supernatural miracles, they remarked that all miracles have natural components. Even the splitting of the Red Sea is attributed to the action of the wind, the rabbis point out in the commentary. Alternatively, one might say that the point of the story has little to do with the plagues. So, if it's an, so one thing is it's supernatural, and if you don't believe in the supernatural, then you're just not religious. But then the rabbis already said, we're uncomfortable with the idea of making it all about the supernatural. It just doesn't seem very Jewish, and it just doesn't seem wholly Torah-like. So what if you go the other way and say, forget about the plagues? Coincidence, sure, we get it. The point of the story has little to do with them anyway. Maybe they're just a fairy tale of old, and it has more to do with the human right of freedom from oppression. Legitimate view. But it does fly in the face of the parasha before us today which repeatedly goes out of its way to put the plagues front and center as the crucial method of God's displaying the meaning of God's name in the world, the essence of what God is, something th deeply theological. We finally have in Vayera the revelation of God's holy name to the people, Egyptians and Israelites included, and God does so through a combination of the plagues and hardening Pharaoh's heart. To put the plagues aside seems to be claiming as non-essential the one feature the Torah is claiming as essential to understanding what the meaning of God's name is. Both approaches rely on a dichotomy of religion and science, a dichotomy of the supernatural and the natural realms, which somehow only intersects in miracles. It's rather a bleak picture of reality and of religion as a mundane realm of humans and nature wishing for the occasional supernatural intervention. An alternative to the dichotomy is to start with the assumption that Parsha Ve'era is to be taken as it asks to be taken. It is trying to teach us the meaning of God's name through the ten plagues in Pharaoh's hard heart. Once one accepts the assumption and does not project a dichotomy, then the natural explanations of the plagues do not challenge our understanding of God's role. They explain it. Pharaoh thought he could use the method of life-giving the waters of the Nile where births take place in water births. Pharaoh thought he could use that method of life-giving as a secret method of mass murder, drowning, secret drowning. Turning the Nile's waters where women gave birth into secret death machines of drowning, he thought an isolated policy would have no larger consequences, but it did. It produced a chain reaction. Maybe what the plagues are asking us to look for is exactly the chain reaction scientists say it, we can identify it. Anyone could. The chain reaction, the midwives' rebellion, the upbringing of Moses, and now God's demonstration. Put blood in the Nile, and frogs whose delicate skin serves as a 
gauge of natural balance, jump out. Rotting dead frogs lead to flies, airborne illness, widespread vermin carrying disease and lice to humans and animals alike. Because everything is interconnected in nature. The opposite of faith in God is the mindset that one policy that refuses to acknowledge our interdependence can be ignored in its interdependent consequences. Somehow we can ignore the lives of those in Central and South America who do not know if they or their families will be killed on any given day by gangs as if they are not part of our human family and ignoring them can bring no harm if we build a wall high enough. Or the idea that a plating factory in rural Michigan dumping PFAS chemicals in the water supply is just a mess over there that has no chain reaction. It's just a mess that would have to be cleaned up as if it cannot actually put PFAS in a water supply and affect the bodies of millions of Americans, causing endocrine disruption in the interconnectedly delicate balance of the human body, which is in God's image of natural consequences and interconnection. So God's essence is in effect interdependence itself, both in the natural world and the human world. And bringing holiness into the world is not hoping for miracles or trying to make them happen, but it's trying to bring an ecological balance to our interdependence with each other and with nature. It's funny that it's no wonder that Moses is asking for the opportunity to go worship with his people, because our worship is in essence a collective celebration where food is shared with the rich and poor alike, the citizen and the stranger alike, and all parts of the animal and plant kingdoms are honored in that sharing. Holiness is that interdependence, and it does not have to be a threat as it was for Pharaoh, as it is today sometimes for public policy and people who want to keep their hearts hardened to keep policies that fast ongoing, as if their ripple effects are not part of the imprint of God on this world. It can be an opportunity to be lifted into the realm of godliness. The essence of God is therefore a flourishing, symbiotic, healthy system. The Israelites had been in symbiotic relationship with the Egyptians as they were raising the cattle while the Egyptians had done the agriculture, and Pharaoh disrupted that balance when he sought to kill and oppress us. And so God teaches him and the rest of us a lesson of interdependence in nature and with all of us. I want to quote a beautiful section, I did not write it, by a gentleman named Bill Shackman. So Bill Shackman spent a couple of years at the conservative yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And Bill met his wife there in the conservative yeshiva. And then they returned to the United States where she did her PhD in Renaissance tree at Yale while he went to NYU to study Jewish studies. They both now are at St. Andrews. He writes the following. Remember God's name. The name is special, an unpronounceable amalgamation of the past, present, and future tenses of the verb to be. The divine name represents what was, what is, and what will be. Loosely translated, God's name could be rendered as being becoming. In Hebrew, the name is made up of the breathy, phonetically fluid consonants Y, H, the breathy W. Though we can put these letters together, they don't form a sound in any recognizable pattern. We cannot say God's name. We cannot limit God's presence in any way. The recognition of that infinite presence within our limited existence is true liberation. God represents freedom from all limitations, 
freedom from all bondage, freedom from all oppression. God's name represents the breaking of boundaries and the linking of opposites. God's name shows the infinite unity behind all being, the oneness underneath the many. The unity forms the core of our, of our moral and spiritual purposes in life. Why does justice apply to all people? Why should we care for all of creation? How are we linked with each everywhere? Why and how can I integrate my limited perception into the larger whole? Because all of existence comes from the same source and shares the same bond of unity. The plagues visited upon the Egyptians, as horrific as they are, are meant to demonstrate the underlying interconnected unity of nature and our dependence upon that chain of being. We depend upon the rain falling, the river flowing, the land growing. It is the natural order of things to keep disease, vermin, and wild beasts at bay, for the sun to shine light, and for parents to outlive their children. When the forces of nature are balanced and working together, we try to make it so that all goes well for us. But if any single element becomes out of balance, the system falls apart. If the water becomes too salty, or too warm, or too polluted, we will go thirsty and the crops will fail and pestilence will spread. Only the slightest change in the temperature or the wind can cause a change in the climate. The consequences of nature out of balance are famine and death. The floods and fires of today are our shared problem. Our unique challenge in the world is to recognize that the air we breathe, the water we drink, the land that produces the food we eat are all connected by the same yud, hay, and vav the same animating, breathy principle that animates it all and links us together in God's presence, the essence of the divine coming into being. The plagues are not meant to be weapons sent to end oppression, but a lesson about oppression. They are meant to teach Pharaoh the lesson of the divine name. If, like Moshe, we strive to see the unity of the divine name behind all things, we will understand that we are responsible for preserving that balance that connects and unites all of us. We cannot continue to pollute the land, sea, or air if we see how our very lives are bound to the system of nature, and I would add the consequences of chain reactions that unites all of existence. So too, we cannot suffer the oppression or injustice of any people if we recognize the unity of all people. Shabbat Shalom.